Okay, let's read that passage. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. <clears throat> but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, you would give us wisdom, spiritual wisdom, Lord, when we encounter calamities and tragedies and disasters in the world, of the lessons you want to teach us. I pray, Lord, for any that are here this morning that are still not born again, that are still lost, that, Lord, something that you say here might pierce their heart and bring them to a living faith in Christ. I pray for all of us as believers, Lord, that you'd help us to grow spiritually today and to be strong in your word. So, Lord, use this passage. Use the words of Jesus to give us life. We pray in his name. Amen. Ever since the fall, this world has been the scene of calamities. And if you're more than 30 years old, you can re remember a ton of them that you've experienced just in your own lifetime. I was thinking back this last week of the various calamities that we have experienced. And of course, the biggie that everybody comes to mind immediately is 9-11-2001, right? Where those two jets plowed into the World Trade Centers and another one into the Pentagon and almost 3,000 people were killed. But in addition to that, you know, in, uh, what was it, 2004, there was that major t tsunami in the Indian Ocean where 230,000 people were killed. I mean, we thought 3,000 was bad here in America. 230,000 people lost their lives in that tsunami. And in uh, 2011, there was another tsunami in Japan. Nearly 16,000 people in Japan died with the flooding and the tsunami that rushed in in Japan. And in addition to those two, you've got the 2005 Hurricane Katrina. 1,800 people lost their lives there. You have, in addition to these natural disasters, there's other kinds of calamities, aren't there? There's the calamities where evil men bring destruction and, and mass murders that take place. And so if you go back in your mind to 1999, we have Columbine, where those two high school students shot up in the cafeteria, in the library, killing, I think it was 12 or 13 other students, and then they killed themselves. In 2007, in Blacksburg, Virginia, another mass murder takes place. 
2012 in Aurora, Colorado. You guys probably remember that one, don't you, where the, the fellow goes into the theater wearing tactical gear and these, all of this armory, and he just starts opening fire on all the people in that theater. In um, 2012, again, in Newtown, Connecticut, the Sandy Hook Elementary massacre that took place. We also have the most recent one, just a little over two weeks ago, in Charleston, South Carolina, where this, this guy went into an African-American um, church and just, after spending an hour in a prayer meeting, opens fire and killing nine people. So we're no strangers to calamity in our day and age. But you know what? There's never been an age where people didn't go through calamities. No matter where you lived or what age it was, there's always been calamities. And Jesus was no stranger to calamities either. He brings up two of them here in Luke chapter 13. He talks about these Galileans who were slaughtered as they were offering sacrifice in the temple. And he talks about this Tower of Siloam that fell down and crushed 18 people at a single time. And it's interesting to me that as Jesus mentions those two things, he tells us how we can... He doesn't, he doesn't teach us why those things happened. He teaches us what we should learn from those things that happened. Sometimes when we go through a calamity or we experience something that's horrible or we see something on the news that outrages us, we get very angry, don't we? We feel like it's unjust that that person or those people would take the lives of so many other people who were innocent in that regard. It makes us mad. And sometimes it makes us angry with God. And we demand that God give an account of why he's done what he's done. But it's interesting that Jesus never did that. Although he did teach the people around him what they should learn from the situations that had just taken place. And there are three things that Jesus wants us to learn in verses 1 to 9. He has three lessons. He wants us to learn about the doom of sinners, the necessity of repentance, and the mercy of God. So we are going to take a look at those three things this morning. First of all, the doom of sinners. And where I'm getting that is verse 3 and verse 5. In both places, Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now let's look at the two examples that had come up that day. First of all, the murder of these Galileans. He says in verse 1, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Notice it was on the same occasion. The same occasion takes us back to chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all. So imagine the scene. It's an outdoor scene. There are literally tens of thousands of people gathered. So many people trying to get close to Jesus that they're stepping on each other. And Jesus has talked about many very important subjects, like fleeing hypocrisy and uh, fleeing covetousness and not worrying. 
And in this last section, verses 54 to 59, he'd taken his attention away from the disciples and he had spoken to the crowds and there he had talked to them about the necessity for them to get right with God before it's too late. Well, it's on that very same occasion. Somebody interrupts Jesus while he's teaching and they said, Lord, did you know about that situation in Jerusalem where some Galilean Jews had come down to worship and they were there, maybe it was the Passover, it was probably one of the national festivals of the Israelites, and these Galileans had come down, and they were in the process of offering up their animal sacrifices to God in worship, when Pilate ordered his soldiers to go in and slaughter them, so that as those swords went through their hearts, their blood was spilled, and their very blood was mixed and mingled with the blood of the animal, the lamb or the goat that they had just sacrificed, there on the altars. Now that would have been big news, wouldn't it? Everybody would have known about this occasion. If they had such a thing as the Jerusalem Times, it would have been on the front page, headline, right? Everybody's talking about this event. But this is actually all we know about that situation. Some people have tried to say that this is the very same thing we have mentioned in Acts 5.37. I'll read it to you. Uh, Gamaliel says this, After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So one guess is that this is Judas of Galilee with his followers, and that Pilate has sent in these soldiers that actually slaughtered Judas of Galilee and some of the people that followed him, and then everybody disbanded after that. But the fact is, we don't know that that's the case. That's just a guess. It's speculation. It's conjecture. All the information we really know about this situation is in one verse, Luke 13, verse 1. But then he also gives us this other illustration in verse 2. Or excuse me, verse 4. He says, Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Now, the only place we read about Siloam in all of Bible is John chapter 9. Remember the pool of Siloam and the man who was born blind and Jesus put clay on his eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he did and he came back seeing. Okay, that's, that's the only two references that we ever have in the New Testament for Siloam. Siloam was on the northeastern part of Jerusalem. And evidently this large tower had been constructed. Now, People in those days would often build these large towers within their city walls because they were on the lookout for any enemies that might be approaching so that they could be prepared to fight in case an army was advancing. Evidently, this tower had fallen and there were people underneath that it had crushed, 18 to be exact. And so, Jesus tells in both cases, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I want you to think about that word likewise. Just like those Galileans perished, just like those 18 whom the tower fell on perished, like them, unless you repent, you too will perish. Now Jesus is not saying that if you don't repent, a tower is going to fall on you, or somebody's going to stab you with a sword while you're offering an animal sacrifice. That's not his point. But he is drawing a line between the doom that those Galileans experienced and the doom that the 18 that the tower fell on, he's drawing a line from them 
to any sinner who does not repent. They're going to perish in a somewhat similar fashion. He's drawing a parallel between the, the calamity and the tragedy that those people experienced and the tragedy and the calamity that you will experience unless you repent. Now what is that parallel? What, what's the similarity between the two things? Well, I think what he's meaning here is that just like those calamities came upon them swiftly and suddenly and unexpectedly, so too, if you don't repent, there is going to come a day when swiftly and suddenly and unexpectedly, you will not be prepared for this. You will be ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ, the judge, and he will sentence you to eternal damnation in hell. You see, in the same way that this sudden, unexpected, unpreparedness happened to these people, in this earthly calamity, an eternal calamity is going to come on people who don't repent. And we, we found Jesus talking about that in Luke chapter 12, verses 45 and 46. Remember that message that he gave on being prepared and ready for his coming? Well, he says there in 1245, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So likewise, just like this calamity came upon them, if you don't repent, it's going to come upon you. Now remember the context. Last week we looked at Luke 12, 54 to 59, but in verses 58 and 59, Jesus gives them this illustration, this little parable. He says, all of us have wronged God. We owe God something that we've never paid back. We owe Him our love, we owe Him our obedience, and we haven't rendered that to Him. And so God is taking us by the arm, and He's taking us to the judge. He wants justice. He wants, he wants what He has loaned to you back. And so we are being taken by the arm to stand before the judge, and Jesus says, make sure that when you're on the way, that you settle up. Make an effort to settle with that man who's taking you to court, because if you wait until you're standing before the judge, it's too late. What's going to happen is that when you stand before that judge, he's going to throw you into prison, and you are never going to get out of that prison until you've paid the very last cent. And of course, what Jesus is talking about is the necessity for people to get right with God before they die and stand before the judge. It's too late then. We're going to be cast into hell, and we will never get out of hell until we paid the last cent. And the problem is, we can't pay it. Once you're there, you have nothing to pay. In a debtor's prison, you couldn't get out of prison until your debt was paid, and you were in prison, so you had no money to pay the debt. And you were dependent upon people outside the prison who might have mercy on you to pay your debt. But when you're thrown in hell, there's nobody outside of hell that's going to take pity on you to pay your debt. You're doomed forever. That's the context of chapter 13. Jesus is continuing the very same thought here in verses 1 through 9. Notice verse 58. Throw you into prison. Chapter 13, verse 3. Perish. Perish. Verse 5, perish. 
Chapter 13, verse 7, cut it down. Chapter 13, verse 9, cut it down. I think Luke intends us to draw lines between these thoughts. Prison, perish, cut down. It's this very same thought using three different analogies or phrases. Now, what does he mean here when he talks about perishing? He says twice, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sometimes perish means just physical death. Sometimes in the Bible that's what it's talking about. But it can't mean that here, can it? Because whether or not you repent, you're going to suffer physical death. If you repent, you're going to die. If you don't repent, you're going to die. Everybody dies, right? So it can't mean that. It's got to have another meaning. I think we can learn what that meaning is from other scriptures. Remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but instead have eternal life. So perishing is set in contrast to having eternal life. Now tell me, what's the opposite of eternal life? It's eternal death, right? To perish, then, is to experience eternal death or eternal separation from God. We also have another scripture that may help us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Do you see the contrast? Those who are perishing those who are being saved. So if you're perishing, you're not being saved. To perish is to forever, never be saved. So you, you understand what he means then by perish in this context. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise experience eternal death. Never be saved. He's talking about eternal damnation. He's talking about eternal judgment in hell. So that's why this, this text has such a somber, serious feel to it. Now, this morning I really want you to feel the weight of what he says. It'd be easy for us just to read those verses and go on and not allow the weight or the force of what Jesus is saying here to affect us. But we need to let it affect us. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They came to Jesus with this theological issue. They expected, well, in their mind, they believed that those people who died offering their sacrifices, or those people that the tower fell on, they were worse sinners than others. And God was judging them with this terrible calamity because they were worse than others. So they brought this theological issue to Jesus this abstract philosophical question. And notice Jesus isn't really all that interested in that philosophical question. He does answer it. He tells them no. He tells them the answer to their question. But he says, but I tell you, very personal, very particular, very relevant to every person there, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, which tells me that what Jesus was concerned about was not philosoph philosophical questions 
or debating theology, he wanted to speak to them personally and warn them of the wrath of God that would come upon them unless they repented. You see, he's more concerned about the salvation of their soul than answering this theological debate. And we need to let the weight of what Jesus said fall upon us. Who is in danger of perishing, according to Jesus? Everybody in this world who doesn't repent is in danger. That means people in our family, our moms and our dads, our brothers and our sisters, our children, our friends that we hang out with, our neighbors that we have over into our home to have breakfast with us, the people we work with, the people we go to school with, Every person when you're driving down the highway that's in that car next to you, every house that you knock on that door, that person is in danger of perishing. We need to let this grip us, folks. How, how can we go through life unconcerned? It, it's, like, it's like noticing that somebody's house is on fire and saying, well, that's none of my business, I'm just going to sleep. How callous can we be if we're not concerned about the perishing millions of people around us? And Jesus was concerned. Jesus spoke directly to them and warned them that unless they did this thing, repent, they were going to end up in hell. You know, we are very, very concerned about AIDS in our country. We're very concerned about stopping cancer and we have foundations and we devote billions of dollars to trying to figure out how to stop AIDS from killing people and how to put an end to cancer. Remember what Jesus said? Don't fear man who can kill the body. And there's nothing more he can do. I tell you who to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus was much more concerned about being cast into hell than to lose your earthly life. Sin is infinitely more dangerous than AIDS is. All AIDS can do is take a few years from your life. You die young. Maybe you die 20 years earlier than you would have died. You lose 20 earthly years of life, but then you spend eternity with no end, either in heaven or hell. And if we can be so concerned about stopping something that only robs us of a, maybe several, 20, 30 earthly years of life, ought we not be much more concerned about stopping everlasting torment for people in hell? And the, the truth is, we know the cure. We have the cure. We know people are perishing. What is wrong with us? if we can go through life and not do anything about it. I mean, that it's inconceivable that we would be so wicked as to know the cure. We have the gospel. We know people are perishing, but we don't care. We just stick to our own private lives and we do what we want to do. Folks, I don't know if... if I hope that the Holy Spirit will help you see how wrong that is and that it's wrong for us to be so callous as to be, well, they might say something that will hurt my feelings. Who cares? They might slam the door in my face. Who cares? Are you going to say that to your neighbor whose house is on fire? They might be upset at me for waking them up. No, you're going to do whatever it takes to wake them up. 
And what we need to do here is we need to wake up people who are perishing. They're sleeping. They're, they don't even know they're perishing. They need to be woke up. And then they need to be given the medicine that's going to cure them, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to take seriously the doom of sinners. If you're not saved, that means you. Are you sure that you're right with God this morning? If you're not sure, you need to repent. That's what Jesus said. You need to repent. Okay. The second thing we are to learn from this passage is the necessity of repentance. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. He says, unless you repent, you will. Let that word ring in your ears for a minute. You will. He didn't say you might, or you probably will, or you've got a good chance of perishing. You will. You will. Now, do you believe that Jesus told the truth? Did, did he know what he was talking about? Then, unless you repent, you're going to perish. You will. You must repent, according to Jesus Christ. Without repentance, it is impossible for any person to be saved. Would, would you say that's, we can deduce that from verse 3 and 5? Unless you repent, it's impossible for you to be saved. It's impossible for you to go to heaven. You must repent. You must. It's not negotiable. It's, it's not something that, you know, I, I've heard preachers say, all you need to get into heaven is simple faith in Christ. Repentance is not necessary. All you need is faith. Folks, they're just telling you a lie. Jesus, are you going to believe the preacher or Jesus? Jesus said, unless you repent, you're going to perish. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is giving his disciples sort of a final calling of what they're to do in the world. And he says, this is Luke 24, 47, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now notice that. Here's sort of like his summation of their calling. Here's the Great Commission according to Luke. We know what it is according to Matthew. Here's what it is according to Luke. Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So, what needs to take place before somebody's forgiven? Repentance. Repentance for forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in Jesus' name. So it's not just repenting apart from Christ. It's got to be repenting from sin, turning to Christ. But that's how Luke puts it. So, what's the meaning of repentance? If repentance is so essential that you can't be saved apart from it, we better know exactly what it means to repent, and we better do it, right? Well, repentance, the basic meaning of repentance, if you to boil it down, the Hebrew term means to turn. It's a turning. It's a changing of direction. The Greek word means to change your mind, but it's not simply to change your thinking. What we will see as you study the word through the New Testament, it means more than to change your thinking. It means to change your life as well. It's turning. It's to turn from something to something. Now, repentance is turning from sin Faith is turning to Christ. 
And those two things are ab actually inseparable. You can't have faith in Christ unless you have repented, and you can't repent unless you have faith in Christ. They're like two sides of the same coin. Um, if, if I turn to face these shades, or whatever you call these things here, if I turn to face them, I have to turn away from you, don't I? If a person turns to Christ, he's got to turn away from everything else he's trusting in. All of his sin, all of the things he used to take joy and delight in, he's got to turn away from that to a greater treasure, which is Jesus Christ. So you can't have faith unless you repent, and you can't, you can't turn to something unless you've turned away from something. So you can't have faith unless you repent, and you can't repent, you can't um, repent over here unless you have faith in Christ. So they're absolutely inseparable things. That's why the Bible sometimes will tell us that if you repent, you'll be saved. And sometimes it will say, if you believe in Christ, you'll be saved. And we scratch your head and think, well, which one is it? Is it repenting? Well, it's both. Because faith includes repentance. Repentance includes faith. Now, what are the elements of repentance? I'm going to give you five elements this morning. First of all, there's a knowledge of sin. You can't turn from something unless you know it exists, right? So you need to know your sin. God needs to show you. You need to see your sin in the Word of God. The rebellion, the disobedience that you have committed against God, you need to understand that. Two, sorrow for sin. Uh, it's not enough just to know about your sin. You need to have sorrow for that sin. Number three, confession of sin. So here, we're actually agreeing with God that what we have done is sin. We agree with Him, and we confess it to Him as sin. So knowledge of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin. Number four, breaking off of sin. Which means that you declare war on your sin. You're no longer happy to go through life indulging in this pattern of sin any longer. You declare war on it. You seek to kill it. Like Paul says in Romans 8.13, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. See, repentance includes putting to death sin, changing those sinful patterns. Now, I'm not saying that you, anybody does this perfectly. Nobody does it perfectly. But yet, that principle of turning from sin and changing the direction of your life away from sinful patterns to righteous patterns is part of repentance. And then the last one is the hatred of sin. That sin that God reveals to you, you hate it. Paul says in Romans 12, abhor what is evil. Abhor it. it. means hate it. Hate it. Don't just, you know, peacefully coexist with it in your life. Hate it. Now, as we've gone around sharing the gospel with many, many people, we'll always ask them this question, do you understand what it is to repent? And they'll always say yes. And so we'll ask them, well, what, is, what does it mean to you? And usually they'll say, well, it means to ask for forgiveness. And we'll say, well, that's part of it. But that's not all of it. <laughs> because you can ask for forgiveness without repenting. If repentance is turning from something, turning from your sin, you can ask for forgiveness and never turn from it. Sometimes people say it's being sorry for your sin. 
or having regrets for sins you've committed. Well, that's not repentance either, because you can feel sorry for your sin and never turn from your sin. Repentance is actually turning from it. To live in a way pleasing to God. To doing the will of God. Now what we find in Luke 13 verses 6 through 9 in this little parable that Jesus tells is that repentance will bear good fruit in our lives. He tells him this parable about, about a man who had a fig tree and he plants that fig tree in his vineyard. And every year he comes looking for figs because he expects some good fruit from the fig tree. And every year he's disappointed. And finally, after the third year, in exasperation, he tells the vineyard keeper, just cut that thing down. Why does it even use up the soil? I mean, here, three years in a row, it hasn't produced a single fig. Just cut it down. And the vineyard keeper intercedes. And he says, uh, Sir, let's try one more thing before we cut it down. L allow me to dig around that tree and pour in some fertilizer Let's give it some time, and after one more year, if it doesn't produce any fruit, then we'll cut it down. But if it does, fine. Let's keep the tree. And the owner agrees. What is being communicated here? Actually, this is, in its primary application, I believe, refers to Israel. God had borne long with Israel and given them many privileges. The law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the covenants, all of that. And yet they were not bearing fruit unto God. And so, here's a warning. They're about ready to be cut down. And here God is giving them one more space of repentance. It act that one year turns out to be 40 years, a generation until 70 AD, and they were destroyed. But although it, in its primary application it refers to Israel, you can apply it to churches, you can apply it to your own life. Aren't we those who have many, many privileges from God like that tree did? We've been watered, we have the sunshine, we've had the fertilizer, we've had something taken care of us, we've had the gospel given to us time and time again, we have a Bible, we have a church, we have privilege after privilege after privilege. Have we borne fruit? The principle that we see in this parable is that if you don't bear fruit, you will be cut down. And that tells me that true repentance leads to good fruit. Good fruit is an evidence that you have repented. If there's no good fruit in your life, there's no repentance. If there is repentance, there will be good fruit. Let me show you this from John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist was, uh, was preaching to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now notice that. He links fruit and repentance together. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you've repented? Show me. Let it be evidenced by your life. And don't suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John the Baptist said, and Jesus said this too in John chapter 15. Jesus said it, John the Baptist said it that if you don't bear good fruit, you will be cut down 
and thrown into the fire. And I don't think that just means losing your rewards. I think he's talking about eternal separation from God in hell there. I think that's what he means by the fire. If you repent, it will lead to good fruit. Fruit is just the evidence of our repentance. So, no fruit, no repentance, no repentance, eternal judgment. So here is really what we need to be considering this morning. Have you repented? You see how important it is. You'll perish if you don't. Have you repented? That's not simply asking God to forgive you. Have you turned from sin? Or are you still living in it and taking the same joy in those sins as you always have? There has got to become a time in your life where you repent. And I believe that if you have repented, you'll know it. Because it means a change of direction of your life. Can, can you experience a complete change of direction of your life and not know it's happened? You ought to know if you've repented. I know that I have. <laughs> God turned a 180 on me when I was 19 years old. I didn't know what to believe about God. But there was a year, I think it was 1979 was the year, when God turned my life in a complete new direction and I've never been the same person since. Has that happened to you? Have you turned from sin? Have you turned to Jesus as your treasure and your king and your hope, your life, your all in all? It's essential. And if you have, are you continuing to repent? There was an old saint that said this, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. And I hope to carry mine there too. I hope that I never grow calloused where I stop repenting. Oh, God help me if I do that. God help me to continue repenting for all known sin in my life. I hope to carry it to the gate of heaven. So, do you know your sin? Do you confess your sin? Do you sorrow for your sin? Are you breaking off from your sin? And do you hate your sin? That's what we can learn about calamities. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. But there's a third thing that Jesus teaches us from calamities. And this is the mercy of God. And he does this primarily in this parable, in verses 6 through 9. Notice in verse 3, he, he says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. Now just think about that. No. The answer is no. They weren't greater sinners. What does that tell you? It should tell you that the people that were spared were just as great a sinners as the people that died in those that tower that fell on them and the, the people that died by Pilate soldiers while they were offering sacrifices. They weren't worse than you, is what Jesus is saying. You're just as bad as they are. And so, here's the, here's the question. We ask the question, why did all these people have to die in the Twin Towers? Why did all these people have to die at Columbine or whatever the calamity happens to be? The question we should be asking is, why didn't we die? We're just as bad as they are. Why wasn't it me? I deserve it. Do you see his point? They weren't any worse than you are. 
we ought to be asking, not, Lord, why did you allow them to die, but why did you allow anybody to live? See, if we look at ourselves from God's perspective, we see that we're shot through with depravity and sin and corruptness. There's not anything sound within us. We're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We have purposely rebelled against God. We've sinned against Him. We have this massive debt that we'll never be able to pay off. We don't deserve to be spared calamity. If we weren't in those twin towers, you know why? It's not because you deserve not to have been there. It's because God had mercy on you. That's his point in this parable here about the vineyard keeper who says, let's give him one more chance. Let's give him one more year to repent, to bring forth fruit. We'll give him every opportunity. Now, if after that year they don't repent and bring forth fruit, okay, we'll cut it down. But let's give them every possible opportunity. I think you could probably read between the lines here and see Jesus as the vineyard keeper because he's the mediator between God and men. He's the intercessor at God's right hand. Jesus interposes and says, Father, let's give them one more chance. I know they deserve to die. They, they deserve eternal damnation. Let's give them space to repent, Lord. And that's what we find when we go to the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see that? God is so kind and merciful and patient to not have cut off this whole world. He would have every right this minute to just blow up the world and all the inhabitants in it to end up in hell. He has that right and he would be righteous. There would not be one unrighteous thing about that. But he's so, so patient. I Praise God for his mercy this morning. We also have that scripture in 2 Peter 3, 9 that, that gives us that same thought. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now here in the parable, in Luke chapter 13, he says, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And God could, in the same way, be saying today, cut these people down. Why do they even use up my oxygen? Why do they even breathe in my air? Why do they eat the food that I provided? Why do they drink the water that I have given? They're, they're, not, they're not doing what I've created them to do. See, God has created people to bear fruit unto Him. Our purpose in life is to bring God, our Father, pleasure. And the great majority of the world is doing their own pleasure. They're ignoring God and trying to use this present world to satisfy themselves and to give themselves happiness and joy, and they're just completely neglecting their Creator who has made them. So, he speaks about bearing fruit. Now, just like it's essential that we know what it means to repent, it's also essential that we know what it means to bear fruit for God. Because if we don't, we're going to be cut down. So let's talk about that for a minute. What does it mean to bear fruit for God? Well, fruit is simply the product of life. Right? If you have a fig tree and a fig appears on the end of that branch, 
It has appeared there because of the life of that tree flowing into that branch, producing that fruit. It's the product of life. And a fig tree naturally produces other figs. Now, how often do you think a cactus is going to be able to be to produce figs? You know the answer, right? Cactuses will never produce figs because it's the wrong kind of life. Now, you could take a bunch of figs and stick them on the pricklies on a cactus, right? And have all these figs sticking on a cactus, but they're dead figs. They're not living figs. He's talking about living fruit. Fruit that's the product of life. Fruit is what Jesus Christ produces in you. And it manifests itself through you. It comes out because he's inside of you. See, we're not talking about taking a sinner and trying to persuade him to, to start changing his life patterns. In other words, he's still a sinner. He's still not born again. He's still not converted, but he goes to church now. Or he stops swearing. That's like taking figs and sticking them on a cactus. It's not the fruit that we're talking about here. The fruit we're talking about is the product of the life of Jesus within you. You see, you can have all kinds of dead works, and they may look good to our eyes, but God looks at them and, and He sees dead works. He sees these figs stuck on cactuses. What He wants to see is living figs growing on a fig tree. Now, let me show you a passage at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Here, Paul is urging the Corinthians to test themselves to see whether they're truly saved or not. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Now what does that tell us? You know that you've passed the test if you know that Jesus Christ is in you. Right? Do you have Jesus Christ in you? Do you have his life in you? Do you see evidence of the life of Christ coming forth from you? Is there evidence? This is not the same thing as going to church every Sunday. This is, you sense, you, you, can, you understand, you experience that Christ lives through you. There is a different life in you now than what once was in you when you were born the first time. There's a new birth, a new life, new power, new desires, new priorities. The, the whole bent of your life has been changed because Christ is living his life through you. That's fruit. Now, in Scripture, the Bible gives us several different ways of looking at fruit. Like in uh, Romans 15, 28, he calls fruit giving a financial gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So giving money to help people was fruit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it's the character of Christ. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the characteristics of Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Or, Ephesians 5, 9 says that fruit is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Colossians 1.6 says that fruit is save souls. P 
people who are saved through the gospel. That's fruit. Or Colossians 1.10, every good work is fruit. Hebrews 13.15 says that our praise and our thanksgiving to God is fruit. The fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. So, so fruit is not just one thing. Fruit is anything that comes forth from your life because Jesus is in you. Anything good that reflects Christ that comes out of your life because His Spirit lives within you, that's fruit. If you don't have any of that in your life, you're going to be cut down. And you're going to be thrown into the fire, according to Jesus. So that's what fruit is. Let me just ask you this morning, are you bearing fruit? Does your life bear fruit? Do you see something of Christ coming forth from your life? Something that's not just your own natural life. In other words, are you the same person essentially that you've always been? Or have you experienced a great change? Where Christ has come in to indwell you. And everything changes. You're a new creation. I hope you can say yes to that. That's what every one of us needs. Every one of us needs that. And if, if you have experienced that change, oh, we, we should desire, shouldn't we, to go on bearing more and more fruit. You know, there's different levels of fruit that Christians bear. Jesus taught some bear 30-fold, some bear 60-fold, some bear 100-fold. If you're bearing 30-fold, shouldn't you desire to move up a step to 60? And if you're bearing 60, move up a step to 100-fold? We want to bear more fruit for God. We want to see more of the, the, the character of Jesus displayed through us, like His love and His joy and His peace, His goodness and patience and kindness and forbearance and self-control in our, in our lives. The next time you and I turn on our TV or turn on our radio and hear about some major calamity in the world, instead of asking God, why did you do that? we should remember there are three things that I should learn from this calamity. I should learn about the doom of sinners. I should learn about the necessity of repentance. And I should learn about the wonderful mercy of God. And I hope, I hope we will learn those lessons. Let's pray. Lord, would you please work these truths into our lives today. Keep us, Lord, from ever haughtily and pride, proudfully accusing you when we see things that seem in our carnal reasoning to be unjust and we accuse you we're angry with you Lord please keep us from that I pray Father that you'd land these truths that we've read from the lips of Jesus this morning on our consciences and on our hearts fully so that, Lord, we would, we would do something about them. We would repent. We would bear fruit unto you. Lord, how we desire to be pleasing in your sight. Help us, Lord God, to do that. Bring forth much fruit from the saints in this congregation, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.